Hello, and welcome to the latest Investec Focus Talks podcast. I'm Tim Spira from Investec, and we're honored to have joining us today the world-renowned author and media theorist, Douglas Rushkoff, someone who Timothy Leary once called one of the greatest thinkers of our time. He's written a dozen or so books. It's a body of work that's both documented and influenced some of the most seminal moments of recent cultural history. His most recent book, Team Human, works off a simple premise that being human is a team sport, that we cannot be fully human alone. So that's a self-evident idea, some might say, but it's one which Douglas believes we're in danger of forgetting. And as new technologies seek to reduce human behaviors to algorithms, it's one that we need to consciously and vigorously defend. Douglas, great to have you with us. Good to be with you. To start, I'd, I'd like to go back a few years, a few decades actually, when I and I'm sure many of my contemporaries first heard the name Douglas Rushkoff. Just to give you a bit of context, at the time, uh, I was working for a nascent digital agency or what I suppose now would be called a digital agency. Back then, we, we kind of didn't know what we were. We were just sort of tinkering around trying to build websites and figure out this thing called the internet, I guess by day and by night going to underground raves. And then uh, and then along comes this book that really, I guess, captured the moment, uh, the moment in history that we all knew was going to change everything. Yeah, I guess you're talking about Siberia, this yes. book I did, C-Y-B-E-R-I-A, where it was the, the early internet era and I was really connecting a whole lot of different movements, you know, from rave to fantasy role-playing and uh, the psychedelic revival and uh, chaos math and new physics and, of course, the internet. I read recently that when you first took the book to publishers, they refused to publish it on the grounds that they thought the internet thing might be a bit of a fad. Yeah, it had gotten bought by uh, Bantam Doubleday Dell to publish it. And uh, they bought it in like 1990 and I wrote it in 91 and they canceled it in 92 because they thought the internet would be over by 1993 when it was supposed to come out. The, I have the letter somewhere from the editor who said, you know, we've decided that the, the internet is going to, you know, come and go like CB radio. I mean, luckily another publisher bought it a year later and then that happened. And then I wrote a book on viral media called Media Virus, which launched that whole thing. And so then I was on the map and kind of more respected as someone who's maybe, you know, not just spouting what the, you know, the kids are saying on the on the floor of the rave dances. Yeah, of course, not it was the kids uh, were wrong. <laughs> Not that the kids were wrong, and uh, and it's, it's something that you actually refer back to in your in your most recent book. There's a sense of foreboding in these books about digital channels and digitization becoming the battleground for our reality. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, one way to look at it, you know, the 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 internet was a very psychedelic phenomenon. You know, it really is. It changes the way we think. We all know that it's a it's a it's like a trip. And the important thing when, when, as people found out, when they were trying to prevent having bad trips back in the 60s, the, the, the phraseology they used to steer themselves really was what they call set and setting. You know, the idea was that you have to have an appropriate mindset if you're going to take a trip and you have to do it in a good setting. And in those early internet days that you're talking about, I feel like there was a, a battle of sorts over the set and setting of the internet. You know, people like you or me were thinking in that sort of rave context, that the rave and uh, thousands of people trying to experience intimacy with one another and to celebrate being alive and to dance and coordinate this large mega organism, that's a really good set and setting. But there was another set and setting competing 
for to contextualize the net. And that was more the set and setting of Wired Magazine and venture capitalism and the NASDAQ stock exchange trying to find a new way to expand the sort of the older set and setting of sort of European colonialism and how can we extract more value from people and places. And that one kind of won. So I think it's fair to say you give modern transnational corporations, particularly tech companies, a fairly hard time in Team Human, the winners of the internet revolution, so far at least. And you paint, I think, a pretty cogent picture of how these companies adopt a a sort of extractive approach of seeing humans and behavioral data as commodities, colonizing this new online terrain and actually alienating humans from the relationships and connections that ground them in this space. But if you think back to the early pioneers of the first dot-com boom, and I think I suppose companies like Netscape and then the firms that have come to dominate today like Facebook and Google and Apple, they've also given us a lot in the way of innovations of tech that uh, surely can be applied in in positive ways, right? Uh, I think... You know we're we're on a uh, bad course. <laughs> I mean, in in the larger way. So you know, it's hard to say. Oh, is you know, Twitter good and Facebook bad and Apple good or Google bad? And I mean, they're all you know they're all different recipes. But you know, our our overall cultural agenda right now feels kind of anti-human at its core, unless we return to the idea that human beings have some basic, essential, underlying dignity, then there's almost no way to develop technology in humanity's favor. We'll always be developing, no matter how positive, we'll always be developing advertisements that are trying to get people to do this or get people to do that. And once you're thinking of people as something you're going to get them to do this or get them to do that, then they're in the passive role. And then they're not humans anymore. Then they're iron filings. Then they're things to be acted upon. And so if that's our prevailing notion, then no matter what we do with capitalism, it's not going to serve people. Whatever whatever we do with media, it's not going to serve people. And whatever we do with technology is still going to be about how do we manipulate humans rather than how do we enable humans. So I'm thinking this also relates to the narrative around the ongoing relevance of humans in an era of automation and AI and what that's going to do to us as a species, not just in our capacity as workers, but also in our capacity as human beings. And it makes me think of something I heard from Yuval Noah Harari, I think it was, talking about when horses became defunct as the dominant means of transport. And uh, the idea that people who were building carriages could retrain and work in auto plants. But this time, and I'm I'm paraphrasing Harari, um, this time with the horses. Yeah, but I mean, again, it's looking at it from a very tiny perspective. In other words, yes, we are the horses if our function is to provide utility transportation value. In other words, we're not looking at jobs from the perspective of what work needs to be done. We're looking at jobs from the perspective of, you know, Renaissance era, early capitalism, where employment was invented as a way of keeping people from creating and exchanging value themselves. People used to just make stuff and trade stuff and do what they needed to live. And then, 
you know, the, the wealthy saw that they were losing control over the poor and they made small business illegal and forced everybody to work for chartered monopolies instead. So instead of having a shoe company, you now had to be an employee at His Majesty's Royal Shoe Company, and thus the job was born. I mean, before then, the only people who had jobs were slaves or, uh, in some cases, apprentices. So now, you know, everyone has to have a job. But it's very ass-backwards to think that, oh, we need jobs in order to participate in the spoils. You know, so it's, oh, we've got these houses and we've got all this stuff, but we can't let people eat that food or live in those houses because they don't have jobs. So we're going to have to invent jobs for people to do. It's just like it's getting crazy. No, you don't. You should invent jobs because there's a, an amount of work that needs to be done. And I feel like that's kind of the the insanity that we've gotten ourselves into, that we are wed to these institutions that we set up and we see them as as sort of conditions of nature rather than as, you know, very elaborate ploys set up by, you know, monarchs in one moment of history for reasons that we've all forgotten about. I mean, it's like if the robots could do everything, which they can't, of course, because they're just externalizing their their pain and their suffering to people far away. It's like, oh, let's use a robot to dig this stuff up, you know, because and how did we get the robot? It's because we sent some kids in Africa into a cave to get rare earth metals to put the batteries in the robot. Or what are we doing with all the old robots? Oh, we're putting them in landfill in Brazil and we're ruining the, you know, the topsoil there or the pollution of these servers that are so it's like uh, we're still externalizing so much crap, you know, all these these robots and technologies. It's really it's like trying to uh, uh, can we drive a car fast enough that we never have to smell our own exhaust? You know, but eventually you come back around the other side of the world and you're in your own exhaust. So we're potentially facing this serious hangover with all of these things that we're externalizing that have a very real human impact, and we're just not taking that into account. And you argue very convincingly in the book that this is a factor of the way that modern corporations are compelled by market dynamics to keep growing. Um, I suppose particularly listed companies with shareholders that are expecting constant growth. But how does one counter that? Because, you know, it seems to be that's the way it is. And it's not clear that these dynamics are likely to change anytime soon. Well, I mean, it's going to change soon if they don't change. It's going to, I mean, <laughs> that's part of the only reason they're even considering changing is because they realize they're facing an existential crisis, not as institutions, but as humans. I would argue that the thing we need to do first is to reacquaint ourselves with our humanity so that we understand what to value and what not to value. If we see human beings as the problem and technology as the solution, then we're lost. You know, if we see the way through as escape, you know, as how am I going to get out of my body or upload my consciousness to the computer before the bad thing happens, then we're lost also. The only thing I think we can do is begin to unwind this by returning to one another, you know, by seeing the value in other people, by reconnecting in the real world, by learning to be satisfied with local celebrity rather than scaling up somehow. It's not that hard to undo that. I mean, you could do it uh, through policy. You know, right now, capital gains are taxed low and dividends are taxed high. So the landscape is created to push companies to pursue growth over sustainable income. You're punished for income. You're rewarded 
for growth. And we have to change the way people understand success in life, that right now success is getting enough money to be able to insulate yourself from the rest of the world. And that's the sad, lonely place. So people are trying to earn money in order to disconnect from their real source of strength and power. And what we have to do is help reify the idea that our strength comes from one another, from connecting and being in genuine community with other people. So that's really interesting because ostensibly on the face of it, with all of these social networks that we now have at our disposal, we're more connected than we've ever been. But you know, at the same time, these are not real human connections that we're fostering here. These are pale substitutes, I suppose. So I guess a symptom of the problems you're describing, or maybe a cause, is the way that algorithms that have a very real impact on our lives are being programmed in a very clinical and emotionless way. So one of the examples in your book that I really loved is that you talk about Facebook algorithms that bring up pictures of people's exes having fun because, you know, we'll click on them. So do we want to see pictures of our exes having fun? No, we don't. But, you know, the algorithm doesn't care about that. They don't care about the impact on our emotional state. The algorithm just knows when I do this, I get a click. So I'll do more of it. It's a sort of flippant example. But I guess it's something that when taken to its extreme is pretty scary that, you know, we're going to find ourselves, our worlds increasingly defined by algorithms that just aren't taking human factors into account. So how do we regulate that? How do we kind of develop tech in a more ethical, humanly conscious way? Are there rules that we can codify? Well, the tricky thing with rules is these the companies find ways around them. You know, it's the uh, you know European Union, and you gotta love them. You know, they came up with the right to be forgotten and these privacy rules, and what it resulted in was basically now you click on something to say yes. So there's now an extra step with every website you go to. It's like, you want the website or not? So now we're just, okay, I submit, I submit, just fine. As if that's just now part of the process, like those crazy user agreements that nobody reads and basically say again, that we can screw you over any way we want to. So I'm, my, my faith in regulation has diminished over time. The easier path, I think, is to train people to feel and, and, and to experience this differently. You know, there's sort of the allopathic model of medicine and a, a homeopathic or a naturopathic one. And the allopathic one is more like regulation. Let's attack the disease. Let's go after the cancer. And then the naturopathic one would be, no, let's just strengthen the organism. Let's strengthen our resistance, our, our immunity to this. And that feels a little bit more promising. How do I educate and inform people to be able to feel what's helping them and what's not? How can we be aware of digital environments that are set up to pursue us in icky ways? How do we increase our sensitivity and our desire to be with one another rather than promote our fear of one another? How do we help people be aware when they're acting out of their reptilian brain stem in reactive, awful ways and when they're in that frontal lobe? And how do we help people you know, long to move into those higher and more developed and compassionate states of being. Are you seeing a kind of countercultural movement emerging today that might be similar to the one, well, I suppose would naturally be very different because we live in a very different time, but having as, as much potential influence as the, as, 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 as the early countercultures of the early 90s, the early internet days when you wrote Siberia? I, I'm Everywhere I'm going with the Team Human book, I'm getting crowds of hundreds of people who are looking to find the others. 
You know, where do I go? What do I do? And and to reconnect with people in the real world. It's just much more of a conspiracy than people recognize. You know, it's uh, because it's happening in the real world, you're not seeing so many tweets about it. You're not finding a Facebook Live. There's a, a growing movement of people on the ground, which is where you hide now. You know, they're out in the world engaging with one another. And um, yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's growing. So that's great. And that's really encouraging. And it's good to end the discussion on a positive note. Douglas, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating and really a great privilege to be able to talk to you about some of these issues that could not be more, more topical or pressing right now. Uh, terrific. Thanks for having me. And, and thanks for, uh, you know, making, making a bank do stuff that's good for humanity. That it'll be interesting to watch. We think so. We hope so. Thank you, Douglas. You've been listening to an episode of the Investec Focus Talks podcast series. Please do subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please tune in to our next episode. Thanks so much for listening. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.